Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the professor of Old Testament and president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology, Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean, and Paul Jean, professor of New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area. And we have a special guest today. We're talking to Dr. Oliver Crisp, professor of analytic theology and director of the Logos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology at the University of St. Andrews. Welcome, Oliver. Thank you for having me. Great pleasure to be here. Great to have you. I'm going to let Gray actually start off this conversation and give a little bit more of a a deep introduction to uh, Dr. Crisp. That was great, Scott. Yeah, but Professor Oliver Crisp is a professor of analytic theology, as Scott mentioned there at the University of St. Andrews since 2019. Before that, he taught for a long time at Fuller Theological Seminary, teaching systematic theology. He's also the author of many books, too many here to mention, but his latest one is Freedom, Redemption, and Communion. I believe that's right, from Bloomsbury to N.C. Clark. And he's also one of the fathers of analytic theology. I think he and Mike Ray are going to be getting due credit for that. And he's been an inspiration to all of us who've been considering how to understand theology and and how to understand theology using analytic philosophy in particular to um, articulate core Christian doctrine. But Oliver is also here because he's going to be speaking on Herman Bovink, especially in a few months here in the Boving Centennial at the Brisbane School of Theology, organized by Dr. Bruce Pass. We thought this would be a great opportunity to just discuss about how Reformed and analytic theology go together, and perhaps how Oliver's work might intersect with Herman Boving's studies in particular and anticipation of that centennial. But perhaps before we get to talking about Oliver's paper for that centennial uh, coming here in a couple of months. Maybe I'd, I'd love to ask you this question here, Oliver. A lot of people might seem to think that reform theology and analytic theology are contradictory or even enemies at worst, right? How would you respond to that as someone who's both a reformed theologian and also an analytic theologian? Thank you. Thank you, Gray. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, thank you, Scott, for your kind words. I don't really see that there's any problem of being both an analytic theologian and being reformed. I mean, I think that there are many examples of theological minds in the reformed tradition who are clearly the sort of people who, although, of course, it would be anachronistic to say they were doing analytic theology, have nevertheless got a kind of theological sensibility that makes it very easy to read them through the lens of an an analytic theological way of thinking, I would say. If you think particularly of the uh, Reformed Orthodox, for example, the Reformed Scholastic movement in the post-Reformation period, um, a lot of those theologians taking up the kind of um, approach of the medieval divines to that the kind of uh, careful approach to um, dividing theological topics and parsing distinctions and, and giving definitions of terms and those sorts of things trying to provide the strongest objections to their views and and rebutting those objections, uh, utilizing various logical and philosophical distinctions in order to do so. That's very much the kind of stuff that analytic theologians do. 
just in a slightly different key and with current philosophical ideas rather than 17th or 18th century ideas. So I don't actually think there's really very much difference there in terms of a kind of theological sensibility, if you like, in that aspect of the reform tradition. And of course, there are um, key reform thinkers who have been very much uh, interlocutors for a number of us who are doing analytic theology today. As you all know, one of, one of my dead friends, as my uh, family call them, is uh, Jonathan Edwards. And uh, I mean, Edwards is, is someone who shows up a lot in um, discussions by analytic theologians today of a number of key different loci. And with good reason, because he is both philosophically acute and theologically sophisticated. And uh, so as a consequence, the sort of stuff that he's dealing with, uh, that's very much in this scholastic vein, theologically speaking, is something which is grist to the mill for the analytic theologian. So I'm not saying that the whole of the reform tradition is like that, but my point is that there is a strand of reform theology, which is very much in sympathy with a kind of analytic theological sensibility. And I think that's exactly right. The fact that you've pointed to, you know, the scholastic tradition in particular, they were very interested in making fine distinctions, logically parsimonious arguments for their key doctrinal claims. And yet this claim seems to keep circulating around. And I wonder what you think is funding that particular perception that analytic theology and reform theology or even classical theology don't seem to go together. Well, I, I think it's an odd claim. For, I mean, I think it's largely um, a claim that is bandied around by people who have not read a lot of analytic theology, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, I think a lot of these things are easy to say without much familiarity with what's happening on the ground. And in the last 10 years, a lot's happened in analytic theology and the, the literature's matured. We've, there's a lot of work being done in analytic theology now and a lot of work that, that explodes some of the myths that are out there about uh, the shape of analytic theology. But I think part of the problem is that analytic theology in some people's minds has become associated with a particular way of thinking about God and the divine nature, what we might call theistic personalism. And a theistic personalist approach basically says that, you know, we should think of God as a kind of big person or a perfected person or a maximal person. So he's got, he's like us, he's, he's loving and he's good. And think of all the, the good attributes that you ascribe to a, a good human being, then just maximize them. That's what God is. And uh, just as we are persons, but limited finite persons, God's also a person, just a maximal and infinite person. So you get this kind of approach to the doctrine of God that's, that's uh, often called theistic personalism. And there are a number of analytic theologians who take that kind of approach. I think what often happens is that people think that's what analytic theology is. You know, this approach of some analytic theologians is synonymous with the project, as it were. And then think, well, that's very different from a kind of classical theistic sensibility that is usually associated with reform and theology, where you've, you think of, think of God not as a person just a bigger person than us or a more perfect person than us, but as, as something wholly different from human beings. And uh, that there's this kind of great gulf fix between creatures and, and uh, creatureliness on the one hand and, and deity on the other, and that we have to approach deity with a, with a great deal of kind of trepidation, as it were, as we try to give an account of who God is. Now, there are certainly analytic theologians who take that kind of more classical theistic approach as well. People like Timothy Paul or Eleanor Stump, a number, a number of other people, that those two um, names leap into my head, as it were. 
And that's one of the great things about analytic theology, I think, is that it's being practiced by people in a lot of different aspects of the Christian tradition. People who are Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Reformed, Pentecostal charismatic. I mean, there's lots of different strands to re Reformed theology. It's very much an ecumenical enterprise. So I do think that there are reasons why people have made this sort of claim, but actually, if you look at what's happening in the movement itself, it doesn't really bear scrutiny. There are people who are theistic personalists and analytic theologians, but there are people who aren't. One of the things that I tend to hear in in my circles, you know, you've got you're surrounded as you as you noted by by biblical exegetes here, um, yeah. is that you know theology should be you know theology at its best is biblically and exegetically grounded and you know someone might then object well here we with with analytic uh theology we're bringing in so many four categories foreign to scripture that it's going to inevitably disrupt the theological enterprise it's no longer inductive and exegetical ground up from scripture it's now you know top down and deductive how, how would you navigate that how, what would you say to somebody like that who, who, who might claim this is to decenter the Bible? I mean, I'm sitting in St. Andrews in St. Mary's College, and one of the things that's happened in the last few years here is the beginning of an Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology that was founded by Alan Torrance and uh, Andrew Torrance. Andrew Torrance still with us. Alan, Alan is now retired. I mean, one of the things that drove them to think this was a good idea here in St. Andrews was precisely this, this thought that analytic theology needs to be thoroughly engaged with people working in biblical studies and needs to be uh, grounded in the biblical traditions and the biblical scholarship. Happily for us here in St. Andrews is a long tradition, as you probably know of, uh, theologians and biblical scholars talking to one another. And so in a way, what's happened with the Institute is, is a kind of the current iteration of that in a way that involves um, us as analytic theologians talking to our uh, colleagues in biblical studies and learning from them as we try to try to sort of think theologically about um, you know the various different theological topics that engage us. So again, I don't think that it's it's endemic to the analytic theological sensibility that it's top down. I, I think you can find analytic theologians who approach it that way for sure. But I don't think that analytic theology requires that as a kind of method or as a way of approaching theological topics. And I certainly think there are those of us amongst analytic theologians or amongst the analytic theological community who are really concerned to ensure that what we do as analytic theologians is seriously engaged with what's happening in biblical studies and with the biblical traditions themselves. And I suppose the kind of objection that, uh, objection that you're mounting is a natural one, given that analytic theology is, is a kind of approach to doing systematic theology using the tools and sensibilities and literature of analytic philosophy. So you might well think that that's a kind of top-down approach. But I don't think it's any more of a top-down approach um, or any more susceptible to that sort of objection than someone who, say, is a classical theist, right? So you might well say, well, look, there are plenty of reformed theologians who are classical theists. Isn't that a top-down approach? Don't you come to the biblical text expecting to find there the God of classical theism? And it turns out often we don't find the God of classical theism in the biblical text, or at least there seems to be some tension between the biblical text and classical theism. What do we do about that? Now, that's a long-standing um, concern in reformed theology, I think. 
So in a way, the concern as it bears on analytic theology is just a kind of different iteration or different variation on a similar kind of problem, that problem that is a long-standing issue in the reformed tradition, so it seems to me. I'm not saying it's not a problem, but I think it's not a new problem, perhaps. It's just a new iteration of a, of a kind of traditional kind of issue that we've long had to wrestle with, how to make sure we don't end up spinning off without um, being rooted and grounded in the biblical texts. I think that's really, really helpful, Oliver. And I think what was really helpful to me particularly as well, uh, thinking about analytic theology was distinguishing it from analytic philosophy of religion, that analytic theology is not necessarily identical with analytic philosophy of religion, because oftentimes when I thought about analytic philosophy of religion or just analytic philosophy, I thought of you know, autonomous reason or university or those kinds of issues. But analytic theology is not beholden to that. And also, secondly, a couple of books that have recent out, recently came out um, that's helped me is, is William Woods, for example, <clears throat> Analytic Theology and the Academic Study of Religion and the Oxford Studies of Analytic Theology, which you edit, Oliver. And before that, Tom McCall's Invitation to Analytic Theology, which really showed that this is just really a tool, an analytic tool to uncover uh, the, the logical issues contained in a particular doctrine um, a way of getting clear on what the issues really are, and really a way of systematically drawing out logical implications of Christian doctrine. So that's been uh, useful to me to think about. But coming back now to someone like Herman Bavink, uh, you know, you mentioned Edwards in particular, and we can see that analytic theology and Edwards do seem to go organically together. Uh, to use a Bavinkian term. Um, but perhaps with, with someone like Herman Bavink, you know, you have someone who's in the 19th, 20th century, broadly continental tradition, theologically and philosophically, right-hand man to Abraham Kuyper, really, really active in, in public theology as well. How do you now see going about discussing Herman Bavink, especially in relation to analytic theology? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I, I, I would love to see more um, engagement with Barbink from um, the kind of analytic side of things, I think that would be, it could be very productive. Let me make some general remarks first and then say something more specifically about Barbink. The general remarks are about a kind of Dutch theological sensibility. Uh, and I think, you know, the kind of Kuyperian, Barbinkian concern with a kind of Christian worldview is very much alive and well and has been successfully replanted from a Dutch context in, in uh, Europe to a Dutch context in the United States, of course, with things like, you know, the community in Grand Rapids and that kind of area. And you can see the way in which that kind of Dutch uh, reform sensibility has, has developed in particular philosophical ways, and um, that in turn has fructified uh, analytic philosophy of religion. Here I'm thinking of people like Nicholas Walterstorff and Alvin Plantinger. Now they're very much, whatever you make of their thought, Alvin, Al and Nick are both very much products of uh, Dutch reformed heritage. And their work is imbued with the kind of sensibility of a Kuyperianism. You know, the idea being that everything comes under the gaze of of uh, theology, in effect. There's no area of life that can't be reflected upon theologically, and there's no area of life that's autonomous of a kind of Christian worldview. And although I'm not myself Dutch or the son of a Dutchman, um, mm -hmm. nevertheless, I think 
fairly early on in my own formation, I, I found that to be a very attractive way of thinking and approaching theological topics. You know, that theology, in a sense, really is the queen of the sciences. If this stuff is real, and if it's true, then there is no area of, of human intellectual endeavor that stands outside of or independent of the claims of Christ and his kingdom. So I think that that general sensibility, which has definitely informed important um, Christian thinkers in the analytic tradition, is something that you can trace directly back to Kuyperianism and, and what was happening um, with the founding of the Free University of Amsterdam and all that kind of stuff that Kuyper was involved with, and of course, Barbink as well. So that's my general comment. My more specific comment on Barbink is this. Of course, Barbink comes out of a particular phil uh, philosophical context and his his education at Leiden at the time is very much of a piece with a certain strand of sort of liberal deterministic materialistic kind of philosophical sensibility of the time in which he was being educated that's that's indebted in certain respects to the kind of tradition of German idealism um, and you can see I think the legacy of German idealism in, in his own thinking and as you all know better than I do there's a, there's a history of debate in um, recent Barbink scholarship about whether or the, the extent to which Barbink himself reflects a kind of modern sensibility or a more ancient sensibility, the so-called to Barbink's interpretation that, that recent work by yourself and James Eglinton and others, um, Corey has tried to um, overturn and I think has successfully done so. So uh, he's definitely coming out of a certain kind of continental sensibility and you might think if that's the case, if he's, if he's kind of imbued with a kind of German idealist way of thinking, even if his views aren't synonymous with German idealism, and I'm not saying that they are, that that seems antithetical to a kind of analytic theological sensibility. Aren't these two different streams of philosophy and don't they sort of butt heads against one another a lot of the time? To some extent, yes, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a, a sensible and useful and productive conversation. In my own work, I mean, as I've started to look at Barbink and think about Barbink recently, in my own work in the past, I've engaged with other 19th century, early 20th century reformed theologians who were in different ways also kind of recipients of a kind of German idealist philosophical sensibility. Um, think of uh, someone like uh, Augustus Strong in the United States, a Baptist theologian, or the Mercersburg theologians, particularly John Williamson Nevin. Now, in both of those cases, you have a kind of idealist sensibility refracted through, in the case of Augustus Strong, a kind of reformed Baptist lens. Uh, in the case of the Mercersburg theologians, German reformed thought. I mean, Nevin's an interesting one because he never goes to Germany. He stays at Princeton when Hodge goes to Germany to, to teach his classes, but he teaches himself German and reads people like Schleiermacher and, and the German idealists and so on, and is deeply influenced by their thought. But you've got other people at the same time in the United States who are influenced by German idealism in different ways. Think of someone like William um, G.T. Shedd, who I have gotten interested in um, and have uh, written a book on uh, many moons ago now. Shed's another one who comes to his theology with a kind of idealist sensibility. In his case, reflected, refracted through Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who, um, he, he, whose works he edited when he was at the University of Vermont and was then a professor of English literature before he became a theologian. So there are many different ways, it seems to me, where, in which you, could, you can trace the fact that these kind of idealist ideas are in the air 
at the time as, as ideas, philosophical ideas are in the air at any moment in time, and how they are picked up and utilized in different ways, creatively utilized in different ways by theologians of different um, communities in the Christian tradition, and in, that includes Reformed theologians. So I think you can see in the United States, as well as in Europe, ways in which German idealism is taken up and the, the kind of German idealist ideas are utilized creatively in particular, the work of particular theologians. And what's interesting is that time again, you come across this idea of a kind of organic motif in the theology of these thinkers. And of course, again, as you know any too well, Gray, um, your work, James's work, Corey's work, people who've been working on this in, in recent times in Barvink, have um, one, of the, one of the great things that's come out of this recent work is this, um, this uh, rediscovery of the organic motif in Barvink's work and a way in which that, that um, forms a kind of, kind of framework or structure, a leitmotif in the, the way he approaches the theological task. In his case, it's rooted in uh, a particular account of the Trinity. So it's not just, you know, brought, uh, idealism brought through to, um, you know, dressed up in, in Christian clothes as it were. Um, but I think you can find a similar sort of concern with a, an organic motif refracted in different ways in a number of these other theologians that I've just mentioned, the German reformed Mercersburg theologians that, that have a kind of high Calvinism, some like William Shedd, who occupies this interesting position as a, a northern Presbyterian theologian who's trying to kind of stand between the continental and, and uh, Anglophone worlds. Uh, Augustus Hopkins Strong, who's bringing some of that stuff into the kind of reformed Calvinistic world. All of them in different ways make a big deal of the way in which an organic sensibility should inform our theology. Now, I think that that motif can definitely be brought into contemporary theological discussions, including analytic theological discussions. Think of the way in which notions of participation, mm. notions of theosis, notions of gift, things like that in um, Pauline studies, have been very much part of the conversation in recent times. There are, there are ways, it seems to me, in which this concern with an organic motif and this concern with uh, a notion of participation that you find in much contemporary systematic and um, biblical studies work could be brought into useful conversation. It may well be that Barvink could be a bridge between these two things. Thanks so much for that, Oliver. I think that's a monograph waiting to happen. Because <laughs> I was just uh, talking to Mike Allen actually recently, and we we're talking about how the organic language is really ubiquitous in so many different directions in the 19th, 20th century, both right. in America and also in Europe, that there's a historical monograph waiting to happen, just charting out the different ways that the organic language is, is being used, and also a constructive one where we can use these things and and apply these things to all those categories that you mentioned from Pauline studies. So is that, now I'm probably asking a, a bit of a selfish question because I'm anticipating the conference we're going to have. Is that exactly what you're going to be exploring in your paper on Bobbing's use of philosophy? Yeah, it is. I really want to get into the way in which the, the organism motif draw, draws certain ideas that are rooted in idealistic philosophy, German idealistic philosophy, but are taken in a particular theological way by Babink and hopefully um, sort of some comparison between that and the, the ways that that's happening elsewhere in kind of different reformed communions in the Anglophone world. I think that could be quite an interesting 
paper, it might also, as you say, stimulate other people to go away and, and pursue some of these lines of, of uh, thought further. I mean, there are, there, there are interesting works being written or have that have been written on this. I think of William B. Evans's work on imputation, impartation, which is now a few years old. But William Evans is a terrific Presbyterian uh, historical theologian. And that book really switched me on to a lot of these things, uh, these things years ago and when I was a, um, just after my graduate student studies. And, um, you know, he's tracing it in a different way through the Anglophone world. But, um, yeah, I think there's, there's ways in which this can be explored really fruitfully. And I'm hoping that maybe the, the paper that I produced for the conference might at least um, make, make a step in that direction. It's very exciting. It's almost like applying stuff that I and James and Corey have been working on. So that's really exciting for me to hear. Right, right, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think what's been happening in, in the recent um, secondary literature in Barbink is really exciting. I do. I think it could be very productive. Things up with a lot of New Testament issues too, or biblical issues, really, just exegetically. That I, I'm just thinking about how often scripture itself relies on organic metaphors to talk about relationship with God. Yeah. Filling of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament, New Testament transitions. I mean, there's just a wealth of material there. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, the 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 organic motifs crop up in all sorts of different places, not just in Reformed theology that's uh, influenced by German idealism. Of course, you can find this much earlier in the tradition. And, and James, in his book Trinity and Organism, um, makes this point in some of the earlier chapters. I mean, you can find it in Calvin all the time. Calvin's using organic motifs to talk about the uh, way in which we're united to Christ or the way in which we're united to Adam and therefore, um, you know, in a sense, um, bound up with the sin of Adam in, in important respects. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, this is potentially a very fruitful um, line of inquiry, it seems to me. And it, it overlaps, interestingly enough, it overlaps with the uh, uh, the kind of liturgical turn that, that has happened in recent analytic theology, where a number of analytic theologians have started looking at liturgy and worship and uh, related issues, and have been drawing on recent um, philosophy, um, social ontology philosophy, um, to try and build pictures of um, human participation in a kind of organic whole as we seek to, to worship God, and as we seek to form the, the kind of body of Christ. So there, there are other ways in which this could be uh, taken as well, it seems to me, and, and in a direction that's closer to sort of stuff that I've been working on the last few years as well. Oliver, you're, you're speaking to us from the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews, and here we are in, in a seminary context over here, and, and you've already touched on some of these issues, but I'd be interested in just hearing your thoughts on what are what is the value or what are the implications of um, analytical theology in the context of a place like a seminary or a divinity school where we're doing this work of Christian pedagogy, you know, theological education, spiritual formation. What are some of the implications beyond maybe the ST department and <laughs> into the biblical studies department, practical theology? Um, how, how can this form us or maybe improve the work that we're doing around the, uh, around the seminary and the divinity school? Um, yeah, it's a good question. A few years ago, when I was at Fuller Seminary, we um, hosted a grant there, um, a Templin grant that was about analytic theology for theological formation. And we got together some scholars who were 
some some were postdocs, some were doctoral students um, to try and think about these things and bring people in to give talks and stuff like that. And we also part of the project was also to try and speak to pastors and talk to them about what theological formation means in a ministerial context and how it might be that analytic theology could help uh, to to um, to do that. My sense is that analytic theology has several things that it can bring to the table here. But, but before I say what those several things are, let me say this. I certainly don't think that analytic theology is a kind of theological panacea that's going to solve all our problems. If only we're all analytic theologians, everything would be so much better. Um, I think analytic theology is useful for certain sorts of jobs, but not for every sort of job. And so we have to bear that in mind, I think. I think sometimes people think of uh, analytic theology is an attempt to kind of colonize every area of the theological curriculum, but that's definitely not how I think of analytic theology. I think it has certain things it can do well, but that we have to bear in mind that it only does certain things and not others. So with that caveat registered, I'll say this. I think that analytic theology first has an important task that it can play in the seminary classroom as we seek to form people who are going to be ministers, church leaders, elders, those sorts of things who will need to know and understand Christian doctrine and need to know and understand the sorts of uh, the kind of shape of Christian doctrine, if you like, the logical form of Christian doctrine, what's good doctrine, what's bad doctrine, how to be able to discern, you know, good arguments from bad arguments, how to um, be able to think clearly and carefully about the shape of the Christian tradition. And I think uh, analytic theology has a role to play in that regard. It's not the whole task, but it's certainly part of the task, it seems to me. And that is no small thing, especially, I mean, I'm talking to a bunch of reformed people. I'm reformed. I mean, this is what we do. One of our great gifts to the broader church, I think, as reformed um, people is the, our concern with right doctrine, our concern with uh, the Christian teaching of the faith and, and passing that teaching on. I mean, if anything is true of the Reformed tradition, I think it's that the Reformed tradition is a tradition full of teachers, of doctors of the church, as as people like Calvin were. So, so I think analytic theology can play a role in that regard in helping form ministers and, and elders and church leaders who are, you know, able to rightly discern uh, and, and carefully and clearly think through important issues pertaining to Christian doctrine. Then the second thing I would say is, I think there's a, a role to be played for uh, that kind of sensibility as it translates into a more practical context. Again, registering certain caveats, I'm not saying this is the, the be-all and end-all, but I do think that taking that kind of sensibility and training into a context where you're seeking to help people in pastoral situations, and you're trying to find the, the right way in which you can take a particular doctrine and apply it to the, the person who's dying of cancer in a hospital bed and needs to, to have the right word of comfort, or um, the right way to think about a particular passage and rightly divide the word of God as you're seeking to preach the word of God on a Sunday morning. Those really important practical um, tasks of, of everyday ministry, uh, it seems to me, are much better and much more effective if the people carrying them out have had the kind of training that enables them to bring to bear in those practical situations the, the wealth and the riches that the Christian tradition, Christian doctrine, right argumentation, all those sorts of things. Not that you're going to be sitting down to the person who's bedridden and give them a quick syllogism in order to help them understand, you know, the life hereafter. Of course, you're not going to be doing that. I hope not. 
But my point is that that being in the background will help you to zero in on what it is that you can say in the context of the person who's bedridden at the end of their life in a way that can help them see in a practical way the hope that Christ and the Christian message brings. Now, again, analytic theology is not going to do all of that work for you, but surely it could be a component part in helping people think carefully and rightly and, and analytically in a way that will, um, I think, benefit people in pastoral situations, people who are seeking to preach the gospel. I mean, you, you only have to look back in, in church history to uh, the kinds of people who have that sort of analytical sensibility, um, who were both theologians and pastors, to see that that trickles down from what they do in their textbooks, what they do in the classroom, to what they do in the pulpit, it, at least if the literary remains of their homiletics for anything to go by. And here again, I'm thinking of people like Jonathan Edwards. You look at Jonathan Edwards's puritanical text doctrine and application approach to uh, sermons, and you read some of his sermons. I mean, they're kind of like a treatise. But, you know, in some cases, when he was preaching those sermons, people were literally hanging on to the church pillars, afraid that they're going to be whisked away into hell, because this was powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, this was affecting stuff. It wasn't just dry doctrine. It was kind of logic on fire, if you want it, if you want. It really sort of made a difference to people's hearts and minds and was contributing factor to the Great Awakening on the Eastern Seaboard. So, I mean, I think there's ways in which that sort of sensibility can really make a very significant pastoral difference. Oliver, uh, you also mentioned just now that uh, you don't want to offer analytic theology as a panacea to all of our theological problems. And you also have indicated that analytic theology is very traditioned. It's very much concerned with the history of doctrine, the way in which the church has confessed the faith and so on. And we're also going to be in a, in a panel together on theological retrieval. Now, when I think about overreach and something offered as a panacea for all things for some reason retrieval comes to the top of my head that oftentimes is being offered as that but at the same time retrieval has been really helpful too it, it reminds theologians that we need to ground our theology in our tradition and analytic theology has been doing that quite well so how, how do we think about the, the task of retrieval and to anticipate our panel perhaps when i think about retrieval i don't want to just reduce it to historical representation or historical repetition. And yet at the same time, retrieval is something necessary for us. So how would you think about this? I mean, I'm, a, as you know, I'm a fan of retrieval theology. I hope I practice retrieval theology. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for theology that's properly traditioned, as it were. We can't escape the great cloud of witnesses to which we're beholden. We do really stand on the shoulders of giants, whether they're Dutch or Anglophone. And it's important to engage with the theology of the past in order to fructify the theology of the future, it seems to me. I mean, that's, that's just, it seems that's obvious to me. You can't really do theology without looking back as well as looking forward. Of course, you're right that the question is about how to do that appropriately. You don't want to try and simply repristinate theological ways of doing things in the past because we're faced with a different context, different problems, and uh, we're surrounded by different worldviews in a sense, and we have to find ways of addressing those in a contemporary context. So I think the trick with retrieval is looking back and drawing on the resources of the past. And then as we bring them into the present, using the uh, ideas, concepts, thought forms, arguments of our theological forebears, but being sensitive to our current context, adjusting, changing, 
using them in a constructive way in order to address the concerns that face the churches today. And that's, uh, that's the difficult bit, I think, is, is moving it from the past into the present in a way that is sensitive to current context, current concerns, and, and the current needs of the churches. But that's a vital thing that we need to do, it seems to me. The, the, the worry is always that you either end up with a, a sort of hidebound theology where, you know, uh, someone knows all about Francis Turretin's Institutes of Relenctic Theology and can tell you all the distinctions that, that um, Turretin makes on a particular topic, but doesn't have any real clue about how, in, how they can take that into the current context and address the school kids in their church who are worried about, you know, whether there's a God at all, you know, what we would think of as metaphysical naturalism. Is there just the physical world and nothing more than that, right? And kids are asking all the time, you know, well, how can I reconcile these theological, these Christian beliefs that I have with stuff that I'm being taught in the school? Well, in a sense, just having Francis Turretin is not going to do the job for you. You need to do something with the Turretin that's going to make it useful in, in the current context. And I think the opposite worry is that you end up only concerned with what's happening now and, and are blind to what's happened in the past. And then you don't avail yourself of the riches and the resources that are there that can really help us um, today, not just so that we're not re reinventing the wheel, but also that will help us to cure the kind of myopia that we have with respect to our understanding of the Christian faith in our own context. I think that's something that, you know, people like C.S. Lewis in the past would always say is that one of the great things about reading old books, if you've read his essay that was the preface to Athanasius on the Incarnation of the Word, one of the great things about reading old books, he said, is that, uh, and rereading old books, is it helps, it helps cure our kind of intellectual myopia, our kind of short-sightedness, where we only see what's in front of us right now. And reading from the, the past, reading in the great tradition, helps us to have a greater fund of ideas because we're engaging with a greater cloud of witnesses. We're engaging with what I've already called once our dead friends from the past who can help us to see things from a different point of view and often in a way that is very uh, helpful. Uh, in, in its corrective to our uh, um, misunderstandings of the present. You're teaching in, in the seminary today. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe sometimes, but you still run into folks who have kind of a principled rejection of the past, right? You right. still run into people who are, who are saying things like, don't read anyone from the past, just read your Bible and you'll be okay. And that's, you're right, it, it's presented so often like that is a freeing principle where it's, you know, it's, it's really not, as you mentioned, it's actually a restricting principle, as, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, you know, it, it makes you myopic, not, not, right. you know, not giving you a full sense of things. Um, when we emphasize this idea that, listen, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit has been at work for the last 2,000 years, and you can benefit from that witness. Uh, when we talk about that, usually the next question is, how do I then choose what I'm going to retrieve? You know, how do I how do I sit down and choose my interlocutors from the past? Yeah. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. As I, as I look at the retrieval projects, there seem to be kind of work that bubbles up around a particular movement or a particular person, you know, and then that, that consensus kind of moves to another area. How do we, how do we choose or how should, a, how should a student of theology choose who to, who to interact with and who to retrieve? That's a really, really good question. I mean, I, I tend to think that this is a very, un, what I'm about to say is an unfashionable kind of idea these days, but I tend to think that there's a sort of canon of great thinkers of the past, a canon of great theological thinkers of the past as well, 
And, you know, you can quickly see if you pay attention to these things that there are a number of key thinkers that you can, you come up against time and time again, footnoted in, in works to the present day, whose work has been of fundamental importance for subsequent thinking on, on given topics. And so my sense is that in orienting ourselves towards the past and, and thinkers who are going to be most productive for um, work today, we want to pay attention to those thinkers who've been most influential and most important in the Christian church and whose ideas have shaped later generations, usually be because they, their influence is uh, an indicator of the, the kind of theological weight of the ideas that they've articulated during their lifetime that have been taken up thereafter. So for example, I think of someone like Athanasius among the Greek fathers or Irenaeus, you know, Athanasius on, on the incarnation or Irenaeus is against heretics or on the apostolic preaching or um, leaping forward along uh, some centuries to someone like Augustine and, and the influence that he's had on subsequent uh, Christians, um, both Protestant and Roman Catholic. Um, or Anselm of Canterbury, who's one of my personal um, favorites, um, or someone like Thomas Aquinas, or the magisterial reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, um, Thomas Cranmer, Martin Buser, and others. And you can just go through that, the list of people who've, who've been of, of such significance in the, in the Christian tradition. And I, I, my sense is that we want to reach back to those sorts of thinkers and re-engage uh, with their thought. But I do also think that there's something to be said for uh, if someone's, you know, working their way through a theological program, I think there's something to be said for uh, apprenticing yourself to a particular thinker and really engaging with one thinker in, in particular. And for someone who's uh, coming from a kind of reformed sensibility, I would have thought that there are a number of great reform thinkers that we can apprentice ourselves to who might well be helpful in this regard in helping shape our thoughts, point us to the things that are important, and give us the tools with which ultimately we hope to be able to step out of the shadow of the master and do some work ourselves. Uh, in my own case, that's uh, Jonathan Edwards very much. Although other thinkers have been very important to me, people like John Calvin and Anselm of Canterbury in particular. But I think there's, there's much value in um, finding someone whose work you really resonate with and just immersing yourself in that person's work, whether it's Barvink or Edwards or John Owen or Calvin or Aquinas or, or Anselm or whoever it might be. And spending a lot of time with that person, um, not just to learn their tics and the, and the things that... Um, seem to be peculiar about what that person has to say, but also to see how it is that they have taken the wealth of the Christian tradition and, re and refracted it through the lens of their own lives and biography in particular ways in, and in ways that have been productive for the Christian church. That's wonderful. I love that idea of apprenticing and, and setting yourself up and ha having someone who you're interacting with regularly and you get to know their quirks and their tics and their and their thought patterns, that's, that's, that's a beautiful idea. Thanks, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's, I think it's very true. I think a lot of, that, a lot of what goes in in, in um, contemporary sort of theological graduate education is about finding the right interlocutors um, with whom you can fruitfully engage in order to do this kind of work. Is there one particular example, Oliver, of a doctrine or maybe even a thinker that you think 
oh, here's an instance of retrieval that actually works. Here's a, a particular doctrine or particular thinker. Maybe it's something in Edwards or whoever that you think has been retrieved successfully in such a way where it is now a doctrine that is nuanced enough and uh, it addresses the, the concerns and different questions of today. Golly. Um, I think actually the, the problem is there's so many of them it's choosing, it's choosing one of them. But if, I'm, if I might take Edwards as an example, I think that um, one could look at one of several of Edwards's key thoughts and track the way in which that's been influential um, in subsequent Christian theology and has been reappropriated in contemporary dis discourse today. So, for example, think of what Edwards says on freedom of the will and the way that that's been taken up in subsequent thought, and in particular in recent historical, theological, and philosophical discussions about that particular topic. And there's a lively discussion right now about um, Edwards's legacy and whether it's a positive or negative one, whether he's done um, the Christian church good in what he says about human free will um, in relation to God's ordination, or whether he's been a problem. And you'll find people on different sides of that debate. But nevertheless, I think his ideas are now understood to have been instrumental in a kind of sea change in how we understand freedom of the will in the reformed tradition. So people like Richard Muller, for example, um, has argued that, you know, Edward stands as an important uh, thinker whose work changed the way that we think about the topic of free will uh, in, in the reformed tradition. For Muller, I don't think it's always a good thing what Edwards has done, but nevertheless, it's an important and influential thing. For my own part, I'm much more sympathetic to Edwards's project and so I think that Edwards, Edwards brings this kind of analytical acumen to these very difficult and knotty theological problems. And in his great treatise on freedom of the will, he manages to do an awful lot of work in smoothing out the problems. He doesn't solve all the problems, but he does an awful lot of really terrific work. I think that that work, the freedom of the will, is still a work that should be read by theological students today who are interested in this topic. I still think it has things to teach us 200 or more years later. So I think there's one example. Another one from Edwards might be the topic of theosis. That's slightly more controverted in contemporary discussions in some respects, at least in the Reformed tradition. But one of the interesting things about what Edwards has to say uh, about the world to come is this idea that we are somehow going to be partakers of the divine nature. We're on this kind of trajectory uh, that he thinks continues beyond the grave as we, as we, uh, as it were, um, journey into God, so to speak, not in such a way that we lose ourselves um, as a drop in the ocean, but in a way that we become ever more Christ-like as we're conformed to the image of the humanity of God in Christ. And for my own part, I have found Edwards's views on this absolutely electrifying. They've transformed the way I've thought about these things. Um, and I think that uh, Edwards is an important contributor to the, to the broader kind of cottage industry that's developed in the last 20 years or so that sought to rehabilitate how Western theologians have thought about this doctrine of theosis that's previously been thought to be largely the preserve of Eastern Orthodoxy. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, that's the thing about retrieval there, isn't it, Oliver, that, that one person's exciting retrieval is another person's worrying <laughs> retrieval. And one person's yeah, narrative, sure. yeah, one person's narrative of decline is another person's, you know, narrative of creative interest. So retrieval isn't just about, oh, here's a old theological work and I'm interested in it. And here, let me now describe it to you all. It's, it's, 
really going to include so many normative judgments and theological judgments that, that we bring to bear to the theological texts and, and decisions about what might be useful, what might not be useful, and also anticipating particular objections to what we're doing. Absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. I think that's spot on. Oliver, when you read uh, the works of um, different proponents of the new perspective, mm. do you think that, and I, I know it's such a huge umbrella, but do you think that they are engaged in the work of retrieval? Hmm, that's an interesting think, question. For instance, uh, would you consider the way N.T. Wright uh, interacts with Paul as a uh, faithful retrieval of what how Calvin has thought through Paul? That's a, that's a very interesting question. I've not really thought of that question before, to be honest with you. I, I know that Tom, uh, who used to teach in this parish, as you know, thinks of himself principally as a historian rather than a theologian, although we, we, we always used to try to um, push him to see that his views were basically theological rather than historical. And sometimes he would agree, um, but not always. I certainly think that he obviously thinks of himself as, as engaged in the historical task, and his, his major works make that very clear. Whether his views could be construed as a species of retrieval in the way that we're talking about here is another question. I'm not sure, I don't know, I don't actually know what he would say about that. Um, I know I've been, I, I've been in situations where we've talked about topics of retrieval, but he's always wanted to sort of pushed me to move beyond, you know, 17th century divines and, you know, ask the question, what would Paul have said? Which, of course, you know, is, a, is an understandable and appropriate question well, to ask. Um, it is interesting. His, you know, some of his early work is on Calvin. And I've heard him, I've heard him later, uh, you know, one time at a SBL, I think it was an SBL lecture, one of those large group lectures. This was in Atlanta, probably about 10 years ago or so. He, he made the comment in an answer to a question that if, people had read more Calvin, he wouldn't have to be saying the things that he's saying, kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, which I took to be, he's, you know, he's, he's definitely interacting with Calvin, but yeah, you're right. As I, as I read his reading, his writings, he's not, he's not explicitly trying to do that work. No, I think that's right. I don't, I don't think he would characterize himself as, uh, as doing retrieval quite as we've um, talked about it this afternoon, unless, unless you were to include Paul in the canon of theologians whose work you could retrieve. In that case, he would probably say yes. Yes. Um, but um, um, if we're talking about post-biblical writers, then I, I imagine he would be somewhat suspicious of people focusing on that rather than on, um, as he sees it, the kind of the fount of all these things. Mm. You, you shared a lot about how um, Edward says, shape the way you think about these different uh, doctrines and so forth. But when you are so immersed in a particular thinker, hmm. inevitably has he shaped you as a person, you know, like I, He has definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I hope, one of the things I've been trying to do in the last, um, well, since 2012, uh, well, 2015, I suppose, is move, beyond Edwards in some of my thinking. But I mean, inevitably, you can't uh, avoid being deeply affected by the person that you've been apprenticed to. And I, as I said earlier, I think I, arguably I've apprenticed myself to Edwards more than any other um, Christian theologian, probably. Um, but yes, I think he has affected um, my approach to life in general, if you, if you like. One of the things that first attracted me to Edwards was that he was a theologian of the heart as well as of the head, 
and that he was interested in religious affections and how the Christian life ought to be lived, not just um, how we should have right doctrine. And even more, that he was particularly interested in um, encountering God and encountering the Holy Spirit in Christian experience. And that seemed to me to be an unusual combination of things. And that's certainly something that has marked my own approach to trying to have a kind of joined up way of thinking theologically that's not just compartmentalized, but to borrow a barvink term, is kind of organically related to how uh, one lives the Christian life. Uh, I think also Edwards's kind of mania for long periods of study and um, focusing very carefully on on uh, Christian doctrines and um, you know thinking through them in a in a comprehensive manner that's definitely um, been an influence on me I think and his kind of Puritan sensibilities of of a kind of um, austerity if you like that's something which has marked me in some ways I suppose uh, I know that George Marsden who the, wrote the, the big biography of Edwards, one of the great uh, evangelical historians of our time, talks, uh, talks about Edwards as about as near as you can get to being a monk and still be married. And there's something of that in Edwards' sensibility. Now, I, I'm, I certainly wouldn't, I don't think my wife would claim I'm like that. But um, I do think that that kind of single-mindedness when it comes to thinking about matters theological is something that has, has affected me, even if I've not lived up to it. I think that would be definitely true. Well, thank you, Oliver. Uh, as you talk about Edwards, I was reminded, I had kind of forgotten this, but early on as I was considering seminary, back when I was in my previous life doing public relations, I was reading a lot of Edwards uh, as I was trying to discern if I should go into this field of, of biblical and theological study. And I can remember sitting in a business pitch in a conference room in downtown DC after being up all night with religious affections, with Edwards' religious affections, and sitting there in a cold sweat as I'm trying to pitch this business to, uh, I think it was Food Distributors of America or something like that, okay? And I'm in a cold sweat because I'm wondering, am I a carnal Christian or am I a spiritual Christian? Am I the carnal man or the spiritual man? And it's, yeah. it's interesting because that does still shape that kind of thinking thinking clearly about your affections and what, what they're directed towards and kind of not just receiving them, but re reflecting on them, uh, you know, still shapes me to this day, uh, you know, many years later. And so thank you. And thank you for this discussion of uh, the contours of analytic theology and the value of retrieval. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. For everyone else, we look forward to seeing you next week. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite provider of podcasts. And until we see you next week, take care. Excellent. How should we land the plane, Scott? <laughs> There's so much here. Okay, let me um, let me attempt to do that. 
Well, thank you, Oliver. Can I ask for... one more quick question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 